1: Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Douglas Murray on the political fate of the US Vice President Kamala Harris, Mary Wakefield on her experiences during Storm Arwen and the subsequent media coverage, and Peter Hitchens on his fears regarding the future of the city of Oxford. First up, Douglas Murray.
0: Does Kamala Harris deserve to be vice president? Is it rude to refer to the vice president of the USA as the world's most famous diversity hire? Possibly, but it is the same with so many things that are true. You needn't take my word for it. Joe Biden made his selection priorities clear when he was confirmed as his party's nominee last year he immediately declared that his search for a running mate was going to focus on non-white women. And in some ways it was a savvy move. Like John McCain in 2008, he knew that the US press might not thrill to a ticket made up of a couple of white male soon-to-be octogenarians. Yet the decision left him with a relatively small list of qualified people to choose from. It would be the same if he'd decided that his running mate had to be a gay. It inevitably shrinks the talent pool and turns the focus from aptitude to identity. So it was that Biden ended up choosing Kamala Harris, a senator and former state attorney general who had distinguished herself most in the primaries by attacking him as a racist. On the sole occasion this was raised after she joined the ticket, Harris laughed her special laugh. You are lucky if you have not heard this laugh. It is of a type rarely heard outside a penitentiary a sort of wild, false, exaggerated impersonation of how a human being might laugh. Harris laughs like Mark Zuckerberg moves, as though he has studied these humanoids and is hoping to stay undercover until Cyborg D-Day. But I digress. The point is that Harris is a heartbeat away from the presidency because of her chromosomes and the fact that her parents were born in India and Jamaica. Plenty of firms and companies across the Western world have been engaging in similar practices. Indeed, there is hardly a field in which the concept of diversity hires is not now an issue. And again, it makes a certain sense. In increasingly multiracial countries, It is awkward to see, for instance, a board that is overwhelmingly or solely white. Take the Guardian's media group. There is one ethnically diverse person in the mix, but otherwise the eleven-person board of the Guardian is as white as the Canadian Prime Minister on one of those rare nights when he hasn't blacked up. Yet... While chromosomes and parentage are something, are they enough to qualify for the second highest office in the world? This is a question almost no one in the U.S. dared ask. In fact, they hardly asked anything. Like Biden, Harris failed to do any traditional campaigning due to Covid, and that worked in her favour. For the American public, didn't get a chance to see quite how terrible she is on her feet. Harris is the opposite of a motivational speaker. Think Emily Thornbury when she's trying to be especially likeable. The vibe is the same. The jollier she pretends to get, the more the crowd searches for the exit signs. The US media did not help the bifurcation of american news means that kamala was never going to give an interview to a network which did not wish her well and in the u s there are no grillings of candidates like the andrew neal interviews in the u k no one even gently simmers them one of Kamala's most strenuous interviews was with Jane Pawley of CBS, who talked to her and her husband before she took office. What is the story, Pawley asked, about Kamala's fondness for a form of soft shoe called Chuck Taylors? Harris did the crazy human impersonating laugh. ''I've always worn chucks,'' she said, the laugh function intermittently malfunctioning. ''But Paulie just wouldn't let it go.'' ''Well, what's the story?'' asked the intrepid journalist again. ''It's my casual go-to,'' laughed Harris. ''I grew up with chucks. I just love them. They're comfortable.'' Paulie then asked Kamala's husband about his crazy gal's fondness for Chucks. I can attest, he said, this wasn't just something she started doing on the campaign. When I met her, it was Chucks and jeans. Paulie realised she had landed the big one, the belter, the one that would secure her the Pulitzer. What did it say to you? she asked him. So it went on. Thanks to Pauly and the rest of the mainstream American media, by the time Harris arrived into office, US voters knew more about their vice president's taste in soft shoes than they did about any of her views, foreign or domestic. The effect is starting to show. During the early months of the administration, Harris seemed to do nothing other than stand in a mask to the rear of the president as he was peregrinating at whatever podium he found himself behind. Now, her opinion ratings have been tanking even faster than his. They recently sank to 28%, which is the lowest approval rating of any vice president since polling began and just think of the competition. In part, this may be because she has been given the thankless task of trying to stop the flow of illegal migrants across the southern border. But it is also because she appears incapable of doing anything. Harris's staff have been flooding out of the Vice President's employment as fast as the migrants have been flooding into the country. Most of her top team have deserted in despair. Those who remain are said to be exasperated at the sheer dysfunction of the vice president's office. There is now open talk of replacing her mid-term. But the Democrat Party being what it now is, the name that has been thrown around to replace her is Pete Buttigieg. The Transportation Secretary doesn't seem to have much competency at being Transportation Secretary, but he is gay. And this, too, is qualification enough for at least one role in the Biden Cabinet, meaning that all those American households suffering supply chain issues can console themselves that although the cost of basic household goods keeps going up, at least the person responsible isn't a homophobe. Somewhere in the midst of all this, there seems to be a lesson to be drawn. If only someone could find it.
1: That was Douglas Murray. Next up, it's Mary Wakefield.
2: If, in the days after Storm Arwen, the north of England began to suspect that the south didn't much care about it, that suspicion has by now hardened into a cert. Many thousands of homes in the north and in Scotland still have no power, and as I write this, Storm Barrow has just arrived, with forecasts of 80 mile an hour gales and 8 inches of snow. In the south there's excitement about the weather, man the barricades, and the possibility of a white Christmas. In the north there are elderly men and women, exhausted, hanging on day after dismal day in the bitter dark. The village in Northumberland where I grew up has now been without electricity for 12 days. No heat, no light, no access to the news. But Northern Power Grid have laid on a fish and chip van by the village hall between 5 and 6pm only. I was at home up north when Arwen hit with four octogenarians. Five if you count the spectral presence of my late godmother whom we'd gathered to remember. I consider it a tribute to her that, as it turned out, We were in the actual epicentre of the storm. On Friday at about 4pm, I took the dog out for a walk and decided that the red weather warning was alarmist. Pah, I said, some storm, though the dog shivered and stared blindly up at the sky like a peasant expecting divine retribution. At about 8, the dog's point was proved. I opened the back door and it slammed back against the wall as if possessed. The sky seemed suddenly full of vast hurtling shapes, Then the lights blew out and the cold set in after 48 hours of cold and dark my mum my aunt and i fled south but i've tracked the crisis from the guilty warmth of london and there are lessons from arwin for any victims of Barra. the first one is not for one minute to believe the corporate pr on saturday the 27th of november the comms people at northern power grid began a vast customer expectation management exercise hi we are northern power grid We have just been made aware of the unplanned power cut in your area and are working hard to restore your power, ASAP. With um, this type of power cut, we normally restore your power within 90 minutes. 90 minutes, right. That promise of deliverance receded like a mirage. 90 minutes turned into 12 hours, then 24, then 48. But because they were told help was imminent, my uncle and aunt didn't leave but hung on, anticipating rescue, ever hopeful that the dying freezer might be saved. The effect of the cold is cumulative. Keeping people optimistic might stem the flow of complaints, but it's dangerous. All across the north, when neighbours and relatives tried to move elderly homeowners, they refused to budge. Why go when they'd been assured it was only a matter of hours before the lights went on? No one could check with Northern Power Grid, because it simply couldn't be reached. Please only call us if there's immediate danger or you're medically dependent on electricity, it texted. I've heard even people on the priority register, dependent on medical electricity, were still left in the dark. On the Monday following Arwen, after three freezing days, the frail residents of Crosshill Nursing Hope in Stanhope were rescued by a local fairground operator, William Henry Clark, and his son, who hooked the home up to his generator. Thank God for William Henry and for Diesel. Why wasn't the story better covered? James Kirkup, who grew up just a few miles from me, has written for the spectator about the indifference of the south to the north. But it seems to me there's an even more depressing answer. I wonder if our problem wasn't just a lack of photo opportunities. The wind was astonishing. I remember the storm of 87, grizzled old timer that I am, and it felt just as bad. Vast swathes of woodland fell, the sea raged and trampolines flew through the air. But this time, the most severe winds blew through the night and there was no chance of footage. By the time my aunt and I went down to cross harbour on Saturday to check for exciting waves, the sea was surly but undramatic. There was nothing any editor might think would make good content across social media platforms. Nothing for TikTok, which is where the kids get their news. Once you've seen one pine wood flattened, you've seen them all, I guess. And cold old people just aren't photogenic. Only two stories really cut through in the days after Arwen. One was about the sixty pubgoers trapped inside the Tan Hill Inn in the Yorkshire Dales. The pub people were fine, they had support and food, but they made the news because the snow was picturesque, and they'd been listening to an Oasis tribute band called No Oasis, so that was fun. The other story was about a really fascinating crisscross pattern the storm had made by blowing cornstalks through a wire fence. As the days went by last week, I began to obsess over the stories the BBC homepage considered worth running. No room at the inn for the fact that some of their longest-serving licensed buffeters were freezing half to death, but top billing for the fact that the pop group Little Mix were taking a break. The main news on a section called Around the UK was the fact that a wedding ring lost in a potato patch in the 1960s had now been found. There used to be an old half-joke about a formula used to decide what stories to run. A thousand dead in an earthquake abroad equals three drowned at home. Well, here's my news formula for the 21st Century BBC. 50,000 frozen pensioners north of Watford equal three millennials bravely opening up about their mental health and one wardrobe malfunction by a celebrity finalist on Strictly Come Dancing. So if you hear Barra approaching, go and charge your phone. Film something amusing flying by in the stormy sky. Make a TikTok. Perhaps if you run a care home, the residents might be persuaded to mime the lyrics from Frozen. If your power goes, there'll be no better way to get anyone to take notice.
1: That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Peter Hitchens.
3: The city of expiring dreams. The destruction of Oxford continues. Only a dictator can save Oxford now. Local government simply cannot grasp how precious this marvellous, unrivalled city is, and how easy it will be to erode it into bare, dispiriting bleakness and ugliness. Any fool can see that the ancient colleges of the university must be preserved, but the setting in which they stand has no reliable defenders. It is true that a plan to put a bypass through the ancient pastures of Christchurch Meadow was defeated in 1968 but that was after 27 years of wrangling during which this hideous megalomaniac scheme was actually described as indispensable. In the half-century during which I've lived in Oxford with a few breaks, the nibbling of developers and expanders has continued without cease. Harold Macmillan famously allowed the destruction of the stately Old Clarendon Hotel in Cornmarket when he was housing minister in the early 1950s. It was replaced by gigantic Woolworths, now defunct, The street, once picturesque, became ordinary and could now be in Wolverhampton. Colleges have squeezed funky 1960s blocks in among their ancient quadrangles. An enormous shopping mall, well suited to Minneapolis, has arisen to the west of the centre doing what such things usually do to the other shops in the city. Meanwhile the old covered market, which in my teens was a flourishing, exciting place, slowly dies. Of the four main streets in the centre, the two beautiful ones are filled with incessant processions. Shuddering buses. The two dull ones are subjected to half hearted pedestrianisation schemes. And there is much more of this sort of thing, the details too numerous to describe here. With very few exceptions, new university and college buildings are Bauhaus style cuboids, which seem to get higher as the years go by. But beyond that is a bureaucratic inability to understand the importance of scale or of the green bowl of building free landscape in which the city stands or of the necessity of trees. Jan Morris, in her moving book on the city, describes the heart-stopping sight of its towers from the low hills to the west, as a brief patch of sunlight passes over the ancient stones. Go and see it while you can, is my advice. Many have also loved the distant prospect across the ancient, never-ploughed space of Port Meadow, like a glimpse of the celestial city. But in recent years, that has been wrecked by a cluster of graduate housing romantically called Castle Mill. It looks like a liberal prison. and The key thing is that hardly anybody seems to realise just how ugly it would be until it was finished. There were then campaigns to have it demolished, or at least deprived of its top two stories, but it was too late. There has instead been an attempt to camouflage it, which is a sort of admission of how hideous it is, And now we have a new plan. This will destroy almost 100 mature trees in a conservation area on a hillside to the east of the city. It will erect an estate of student barracks, some of them almost 60 feet high. The mass of it on the slope will be striking, to put it mildly. There are already student houses there, but they are low and small and hidden by woodland. If you've watched Inspector Morse when they've done one of those serene views of the city, you've probably seen the camera sweep across this spot, part of the green backdrop to the golden heart of Oxford. It is also visible from the high ground to the west, where Jan Morris and Matthew Arnold alike once looked in wonder at one of the loveliest places on earth. This scheme is desired by Oxford's other university, brooks, which claims to need the extra space to house 500 students. It is desired by the local authorities, who bow down to a local plan which alleges that Oxford needs huge amounts of new housing. It was twice rejected by the City Council, there were strong objections from those living nearby and also from the Oxford Preservation Trust which warned of a considerable intensification of development which cannot be achieved without impacting on the Oxford views. But just as the objectors were rejoicing as a rare victory over the development monster, the proposal somehow came back to life. It was approved last month by six votes to three at a meeting of a planning review committee which is said to be final. As the vote went through, a member of the public called out, Castle Mill, making a direct comparison with the previous planning disaster on Port Meadow. Shall we wait to see if he is right? Shall we wait to see how it looks when the chainsaws get to work on the irreplaceable trees? When the stark massing of blocks rises amid the cranes, and another little patch of beauty is sacrificed to the god of growth? Or is it time that we understood in this country that we have in Oxford a possession beyond price? which we inherited from our forebears and should leave undamaged to our heirs. It is not ours to destroy or damage. Local government has had its chance to govern Oxford and has made a dreadful mess of it. I think it is time for central government to put such places under the rule of a kind of prefect who does not need 27 years to know that a road across Christchurch Meadow is a bad idea and who understands that some things are more valuable than money. The joke used to be that Oxford, overpowered by car factories, would become the Latin quarter of Cowley. The threat now is that it will become lost entirely amid crowds, noise and development. Its spirit entirely vanished.
1: That was Peter Hitchens. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with a special Christmas edition of Spectator Out Loud next week.